0: there welcome on into downtown the podcast rich kimball and carrie haskell with you from our zone radio studios in bangor maine where our downtown radio show originates every weekday afternoon at four o'clock eastern time on wzon radio wkit hd3 streaming audio at the wzon app an easy download and so easy to use, and at our website, downtownwithrichkimble.com. Well, it's sort of a holiday edition of the podcast this week, so we've got a special item or two from the archives for you this time around, including a conversation from uh, earlier in the year with the legendary Leslie Visser, a Hall of Famer who came out with a, a wonderful memoir this year. We'll talk with her about that. But we thought we'd offer something up uh, extra special for this time of year from a longtime friend of the show, actor and storyteller Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh, We brought him to Eastern Maine last year for a wonderful performance, a night of storytelling at the Brewer Performing Arts Center and recorded live in Brewer, Maine. Here's Stephen with a little something for the season, The Santa
1: Conspiracy. My mother read me bedtime stories every night usually from a volume of Grimm's fairy tales every night. By the time I was three, I learned that there are two kinds of bedtime stories. There are the good ones, in which loyalty is rewarded with love, and kingdoms are granted to simple yet honest souls. And there are the bad ones, where the children are eaten, the treasure turns to straw, and the princess is poisoned, sleeps for a thousand years. With Grimm, I never knew what I was going to get. The ratio of happy to horrible bedtime stories was only detectable in the frequency of my nightmares. Uncertainty is the subtlest form of tyranny. And eventually, I became afraid of the dark. The product of my terror was a monster who took up residence in my bedroom. His name was I, the Monster. That's I, E-Y-E, as in eyeball, because I thought eyeballs were scary. Not I, the Freudian I, as in this child needs a psychiatrist. (laughs) I terrified me. But occasionally he hinted that his task was not to threaten, but to protect. He promised to come out of the toy closet whenever danger was near. One night, I heard a noise on the roof above my bed. I ran down to my mother and father's room for protection and or intervention if necessary. My mother woke up and tried to reassure me, "Steppy doors, don't worry. It's just a night noise." Night noise? What's a night noise? Sometimes houses make sounds. They do. Why? No one knows. <laughs> But nothing will hurt you, darling. Please just go back to bed. I was unconvinced, but I went back to my room. I climbed into bed, pulled the covers over my head, and that's when I heard I. He called out my name. I said, you can't hide from me. Come out. Come out from under those covers now. And I began to cry. I forced the covers back. I got out of bed, and shaking with fear, I started to walk toward the toy closet where I lived. I reached for the door, but then I heard his voice behind me. He told me he had moved from the closet to under my bed so he could be closer to me at night when I slept. But I found no comfort in that. In the end, I never knew if I was my fear or I was my salvation. I always wonder, what happened to I the monster? Such a constant companion to me when I was three, four, five years of age. It takes a lot of energy to sustain and create an entire monster. And if you believe what Albert Einstein says, that energy cannot be created nor destroyed, but only changes form. Then I ask, what form did I change into? Where does our fear of the dark go? I have a theory. I think that over the course of human history, our fear of the dark has turned into science, art, and religion. Science to measure the darkness, art to show us its beauty, and religion to teach us that it's really light all the time. You just have to be able to believe in the light to see it. During the era of I, the monster, I tried many things to ease my fear. I tried science in the form of a nightlight. I tried art in the form of focusing on the really good bedtime stories. And I even discovered prayer. I had never prayed in my life. I didn't even know what a prayer was. I was too young. But in preschool, we had a reader filled with drawings called, What Good Children Do. And being good was very important to me, because one of my chief concerns, besides the dark and I the monster, was the naughty and nice list that Santa Claus kept. During the last month, my teacher took away my cookie for opening my eyes during rest period. She made me stand in the hallway for using my desk as a set of drums. And at home, I even made my mother cry. I was afraid I was falling to the naughty side of the ledger. So, chapter 1 said, Good children, start the day, wash their face, brush their teeth, comb their hair. Throughout the day, they say please and thank you. And at night, they say their prayers. I asked my mother, What is a prayer? She said, steppy doors. That's when you talk to God. Well, I wasn't sure that was such a good idea. I mean, I was already scared of Santa. In the book, they had a picture of a very clean, blonde boy in pajamas, kneeling by his bed with his hands folded, looking upward. I told my mother, I want to do that. And my mother said, all right. So after supper, I ran to the bathroom. I took my little book with me, and I combed my hair exactly the way the boy in the book had. He had a blonde swirl right here. And I tucked my pajama shirt into my pajama pants, got into my bedroom, knelt down, folded my hands, looked upward. And I said to my mother, what do you say when you talk to God? My mother thought about it, and she said, Steppy Doors, here's one you could try. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What? (laughs) What? is what you're supposed to say to God to feel better about things? If I should die before I wake, come on. I would rather take my chances with I, the monster. Forget it. Well, that was the last time I said that prayer. I knew at this point I was going to die in my sleep and be on the naughty list. And it was under this dark cloud I experienced my first conspiracy, the probable collusion between my mother, my father, and Santa Claus. (laughs) <laughs> to be clear, we were Jewish. We, sh- <coughs> we should not have been celebrating Christmas. Uh, we did not have a Christmas tree. I mean, we did not have a chimney, which would have made any Santa contact problematic. But we lived in Oak Cliff, Oak Cliff was a suburb of Dallas, about 25 miles away from downtown, and it was home to exactly three Jewish families. And my mother and father were very sensitive to anti-Semitism, and they feared that other children would taunt us if we appeared to be different. But secretly, I think my parents were afraid of our being different, whether we were taunted or not. My mother and father decided not to give us presents on the eight days of Hanukkah, but to go with the Santa scenario and give us our presents on Christmas morning. That way we wouldn't have to feel like outcasts on our first show and tell when we got back after winter break. However, it wasn't going to be that simple. It wasn't going to be as simple as celebrating Christmas in the good old-fashioned, non-religious, strictly commercial way with a tree, presents and hot cocoa. No, My mother felt guilty that she was betraying her Jewish roots, so as a compromise, she said because we were Jewish, we could have no tree, and in its place, thanks to a thought process that baffles me to this day, we would get our presents under the dining room table." Like all children, we were up Christmas morning, up at dawn, racing into the dining room, scurrying between the chairs, looking under the table in the dark for packages that had our name on them, occasionally banging our head on the hard mahogany. (laughs) One Christmas, I mustered up the courage to ask my mother the tough questions. Mom, we have no chimney. What is Santa going to do? She said, I put a note out for Santa to use the back door. Well, that disturbed me. It meant either we were leaving our house unlocked over the holiday, which seemed unsafe, or Santa had our key, which just seemed creepy. <laughs> what is Santa going to do without a tree, I asked. My mother said, Santa is fine putting the presents under the dining room table, sweetheart. I said, I, I, I know he's fine with doing it, but why? Why does he do that? It's such a lot of work, and Christmas Eve is such a busy night for Santa. He's flying around, and now he has to stop and crawl around, move the chairs around. And my mother said, sweetheart, Santa does not mind doing extra work. He just doesn't want you to feel different from other children by not having your presence under something. (laughs) I said, Mom, we're still different from other children. No other children get their presents under a dining room table. And the kids that have a Christmas tree, the presents aren't under the Christmas tree, the presents are around the Christmas tree. My mother thought about this for a while and then did what most people do when they rely on a conspiracy theory for their basis of reality. She passed the blame on up to a higher authority. Steppy doors. We wrote Santa about the chimney and the tree. He said, leave the door unlocked, and he would put the presents under the table. I don't know why he said that. That's what he said. You would have to talk to Santa about that. Deferring to Santa worked until I was six. I was in first grade. My doubts troubled me. I had no one to talk to about it until one afternoon after school. Right before the Christmas vacation, it was a sunny, cold December day, and I was headed over to Doherty's Drugstore to read comic books before I walked home. And brief historical note, in the 1950s, children walked. I'm standing at Keese Boulevard, and I heard a classmate call me, Hey, Stephen, where are you going? And I turned around, and it was Dwayne. I didn't spend too much time with Dwayne. He didn't live in our neighborhood, so I rarely played with him, and I don't even remember speaking to him one on one, except for this conversation I am about to relate to you. Dwayne was a very special kid. Even though he was in our first grade class, he had already turned seven. So I imagined he was a much wiser fellow than I. Dwayne was handsome. He was a good student, good athlete, never got into trouble. Teachers loved Dwayne. Dwayne was so popular that the principal of the school declared Dwayne the best citizen of the entire first grade. And that is six first grade classes. And this very day, Dwayne was wearing his blue ribbon pinned onto a sweater, and it was just flapping. Away in that cold December breeze, I was a little starstruck. As we walked, Dwayne asked me if I was looking forward to Christmas. I gave him my enthusiastic but highly conflicted, sure. (laughs) Dwayne paused and looked off in the distance and turned back to me and said, he still believed in Christmas. He was just not sure if he still believed in Santa. A fellow skeptic. I dare not tell him about the dining room table, though. Not yet, not yet, too soon. I just swallowed hard and told him I was on the fence about Santa, too. Yeah, hard not to be, Dwayne said. Well, last year, Dwayne, I did hear a noise on the roof above my bed, it could have been a sleigh. Well, you have a chimney, Dwayne asked? No. Dwayne shook his head, well, if you don't have a chimney, Santa's not gonna land on your roof. Probably just squirrels? (laughs) Yeah, probably. We stopped at the curb. Dwayne looked both ways for approaching traffic. And I blurted out, Dwayne, it's just I really want to believe in Santa. And Dwayne turned to me and smiled. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, I know, Stephen, me too. But I think it's always easier to want to believe in something than it is to say it never was true. (laughs) I was staggered by the profundity of the remark. Duane looked across the deserted playground for a moment, then back to me and said, Don't get me wrong. I love Santa. But this will probably be the last year I believe. I had that conversation over 50 years ago. I still remember it. And I thought I always remembered it because it was the only conversation I ever had about the Santa crisis. But now as I look back, no, I think it's memorable because it was my first crisis of belief. Over the decades, many crises of belief have come and gone. And a few years ago, I was going through another one. And I was headed back to Dallas at Christmas time, and not for anything as festive as opening the presents under the old mahogany table. I came back to honor my mother's yard That's the anniversary of her death. It's a very difficult time for our family and a very, very hard time for my father. But it was a good time for us all to come together Time for me to spend time with my brother and sister. We would all tell stories. It was also a chance for me to sleep on my unsleepable bed. Troop. When I would go back to Dallas, I still slept on the same bed I had when I was a child. When that mattress salesman told mom and dad this bed would last a lifetime... They took him at his word. But a trip to Dallas also held a potential for archaeological discovery. My mother saved everything. She took the bits and pieces of our past in the most improbable places for safekeeping. And after she passed away, it became painfully clear that she did not leave a map. But sure enough, first night home in a little broken dresser next to my little broken nightstand in a bottom drawer underneath a pair of pajamas last worn in junior high school. I found an old manila envelope with my mother's handwriting on it saying, For Stephen. And I opened it up and inside was a copy of my elementary school newspaper, The Jefferson Davis Times. Yes, our school was named after the president of the Confederacy. (laughs) I looked through the little paper, and there on the back page was a picture of our first grade class taken in front of the school. I studied it, and there was Dwayne. He was sitting on the ground next to me with his best citizen ribbon pinned to his shirt. It is the only picture I have of him. And I looked up and thanked my mother, wherever she may be, for the most wonderful Christmas present I ever got. And I took a pen, and I wrote Duane's words in the margin for fear that one day I might forget them. And it had an unexpected effect. I looked at the photo of all those six-year-old faces standing in front of Jefferson Davis Elementary, surrounded by the words, It's always easier to want to believe in something than it is to say it never was true. And it became a grim school motto. Dwayne's proverb seem to speak to false prophets and the way they enter our lives. His wisdom still shakes me to the core, but then again, he was seven. (laughs) I put the paper down on my little broken bedside table, turned the lights out with the images of the photograph and Wayne's words floating in my head. I've discovered that we often find things when we need them, And maybe all of the scraps of paper mom had saved over the years weren't a product of her nuttiness at all, but were meant for me to unearth every now and then as some sort of amulet of protection. And I sat up in the dark and I turned on the light and I looked at the picture again and I saw something new. I looked at Dwayne's words. It's always easier to want to believe in something than it is to say it never was true. And before my eyes, the emphasis of the words changed, meaning turned on its head, and now the sentence read, it's always easier to want to believe in something than it is to say it never was true. Now, Duane's proverb, instead of warning about self-deception, was talking about hope. He was saying the ability to believe is always present, always available, Belief is what gives us the power to see beyond the obvious. In the face of loss or disappointment, belief is the source of renewal and endurance. It is the foundation of the science of second chances. I was momentarily startled by a noise on the roof. A night noise. But now I recognize it as the central heat kicking in. Knowledge is the ultimate protection against the dark. But I had to smile when I realized my first thought was wondering how I, the monster, was doing. Some monsters never go away. I lay back down and closed my eyes. And in an instant, I was back on that street with Duane, about to cross over that cold, cold afternoon before Christmas. He laughed and put his arm around my shoulder. We looked both ways for oncoming cars and then ran over to Doherty's Drugstore. And just like that, I was in one of the good bedtime stories. And I closed my eyes and I had pleasant dreams. Thank you.
0: That's Stephen Tobolowsky, a wonderful story from his book, My Adventures with God. Did that live in Brewer, Maine at the Performing Arts Center there. When we come back, a conversation with sports writing and sports casting legend Leslie Visser. First, this From our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
1: Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
0: Just over five years ago, a couple of friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing, and Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Ask for beers from nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and look for Nice and Cans all over the state of Maine. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Our next guest here on Downtown the Podcast is a legendary sports writer and sportscaster from her days at the Boston Globe to her many years with CBS Sports. The great Leslie Visser been a longtime fan of the show. We had a wonderful time early this year catching up with her to talk about her terrific new memoir entitled Sometimes You Have to Cross When It Says Don't Walk, A Memoir of Breaking Barriers. Here's Leslie Visser on Downtown, the podcast. The book is absolutely wonderful. I I couldn't put it down. I read it in one night. Uh, The title, Sometimes You Have to Cross When It Says Don't Walk, A Memoir of Breaking Barriers. And that title comes from something your mom said to you when you were about 11 years old and and announced your career
2: plans. Yeah, thanks for asking. My family moved a lot. When I was a kid, my, um, not that people would ever know this, but my father grew up in Amsterdam under the Nazi occupation. He was not Jewish, but they were all starving. I mean, he went to Montessori school with Anne Frank and, you know, he said, boy, in America, there's so much opportunity and don't take that for granted. And we were living in Cincinnati, although I'm a native Bostonian, but we were living in Cincinnati. And I said to my mother, I want to be a sports writer, which, you know, that was so bizarre. It was like saying, I want to go to the moon, you know, or I want to be a Supreme Court justice. Thank you, Sandra Day O'Connor. <laughs> but um, I said, I want to be a sports writer. And instead of saying, forget it, this is in the early 60s, she said, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk.
0: Well, great advice indeed, and you followed that. Now, you mentioned uh, growing up uh, in your early years in Boston. I I enjoyed reading about uh, that, and you talked about uh, the three things that everybody loves and talks about in Boston, sports, politics, and AM radio. And I laughed because the other day on our show, we had a guy who was huge in Boston radio uh, back in the day. Dick Summer was on with us.
2: Of course, of course. I mean, we all... I mean, how do we get to know the Beatles when I'm um, older than most of your listeners? But, gosh, it was AM radio, and you were either BZ or WMEX, and uh, I was a Woo-Woo Ginsburg. <laughs> That's good. But, um, yeah, AM radio is where, you know, you heard the music, and, of course, I grew up with the Red Sox. I mean, I couldn't believe I live in Florida now. My husband is from Ohio but he was actually the captain of Harvard basketball, Bob Knuth. And so, but he retired down here. So it's so strange down here because what was the one thing the Red Sox needed? Stanton. Stanton is what we needed. <laughs> but he right. went to the evil empire.
0: <laughs> now, you mentioned your husband, captain of the Harvard basketball team, although uh, you tell in the book uh, that, that when you met him, you didn't believe it and said,
2: how come I never heard of you? I can't believe you told that story. Of course, (laughs) most people know I was married to the great Dick Stockton, who called Carlton Fisk's home run. That was the night I met him, and Dick was great. Dick and I were married for 26 years, just ran out of gas. But, yes, I met uh, Bob Knuth, and when Rick Pitino introduced us at the Kentucky Derby, he said, meet a friend of mine. He was the captain of Harvard basketball. Now I've covered 35 Final Fours, so you know I, I and i work with james brown who was the captain after my husband of harvard basketball so i stuck out my hand and i you know you could just see my new england spine going up and i said <laughs> captain of harvard basketball <laughs> i don't think so and uh, my now husband looked at me and said you must have missed 4 years as <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a which is which is true, because, you know, now Harvard gets to the tournament. Of course, my husband, we text Tommy Amaker all the time. But, you know, at the time, you can't say yourself, no one was following Harvard basketball.
0: Now, I, I also, a number of things that uh, stood out to me in reading the book. One is uh, apparently our shared affection, although perhaps with different motivation, for former Giants running back Tucker Frederickson.
2: Yes, yes. I hope people... Um, I hope people buy this book because it's about anybody who had a dream, which you're going to have to share with me what your dream was. But um, mine was just sports. You know, other kids love poetry or love music, but I just love sports. And I finally got around to writing this book and it's on Amazon and, you know, eventually bookstores. But, yes, I loved Tucker Fredrickson. And, you know, in Boston – We don't really follow college football, but, you know, Tucker was, I think he he finished second in the Heisman, you know, from Auburn, and, you know, he was just great, and I got to know him, because, of course, he went to the New York Giants, so I got to know him later, and now I consider him a friend, but yes, I um, i mean, wasn't Tucker Fredrickson kind of, you thought... Because we didn't follow college football in Boston, but if you did, didn't you think Tucker Fredrickson was great?
0: I did, and and up here, uh, before the Patriots really caught on in the early and, and mid-60s, we grew up in this area, many of us as Giants fans, and so you know, Tucker Fredrickson was the the great hope along with uh, guys like Joe Morrison and Bobby Duhon and gosh, even Norm Snead.
2: Yeah, and don't forget Chuck Mursin,
0: right, who right. of course
2: had played at Yale and then played in the ice bowl. So, yeah, no, I knew the Giants too as a kid. It, yeah, it was I mean, the Patriots were it's so astonishing to me and I'm so close to that organization. They've been so great to me. But, you know, when we grew up, they were really bumbling. Remember they would play in different stadiums and who was the player? Remember the time they they called him out of the stands that he'd been cut <laughs> and right. he was up there <laughs> drinking in the stands and they said report to the locker room and his friends who was that? They wondered where he went, and then it was so-and-so on the tackle, right? Right, <laughs>
0: yeah, you, I can't remember. You wrote about him in the book. I, I can't remember yeah, who I, I it was.
2: The but they were such, you know, the Patriots, when we all started, they were, you know, if you had pride in the NFL, it was the Giants.
0: Well, the Patriots, we're talking with Leslie Visser here on Downtown. Patriots are, of course, the model organization these days, and and part of that is because of the work uh, of Robert Kraft, who was incredibly helpful to you, but not in his role as owner of the Patriots, but going back to the lobsters for people who might have forgotten them.
2: Yeah, thanks thanks for mentioning that. I think Bud Collins, the great Bud Collins, came up with that idea, lob and tennis, the lobsters. And uh, he came up with the, um, the little cartoon insignia. You know, it was a great team. It had Martina. She had defected. She wasn't yet a citizen, but she had defected. And, and Robert Kraft decided, wow, I'm going to own this team. They played in Walter Brown Arena. Nobody came. <laughs> but for me, what a privilege. I mean, I, I did go on to cover 15 Wimbledons, mostly with Bud and 25 U.S. Opens. So I know most people identify me with either basketball or football, but I had the privilege. I even went back with Martina. Uh, It was interesting. She had come from Prague, as many people know, and she won five or six straight Wimbledons, and not one word was written because she had defected, and under the old Soviet regime, you were considered a non-person. So not one word had been written, but she went back, as a member of the Federation Cup, which was like the women it is, the Women's Davis Cup. And I got to cover it and she had not been back to Prague since she defected. And it was really interesting that it was a rainy day. I remember we had to make a connection in Frankfurt on Maliv, which she probably never taken, Hungarian Airline, Maliv Airlines, and it landed in Prague. And of course she took the steps down on the bottom pouring rain. Thousands of people went there because they heard the great Martina was coming home, and they stood behind chain-link fences, you know, really taking on the government, but with kids on their shoulders, you know, just to get a glimpse of Martina Navratilova.
0: You've had so many remarkable highlights and continue to in your career. Uh, One of them uh, that's fascinating to me, and your recollection of it in the book, is uh, being there for part of the coverage when the Berlin Wall came down.
2: Really uh, profound for me, as I said, my dad grew up in Amsterdam, everybody was starving, and so I just had a really small piece of the pie of the coverage, but in in 89, in uh, November of 89, uh, what had happened, for people who don't know, is that um, the, the exit strategy, people were starting to go through Hungary. And East Germany realized, wow, you know, we're losing everything. We're losing scientists and doctors. And my little slice of the pie was athletes, because you remember the great Katerina Witt. She had been from East Germany, and, of course, all the swimmers won all the gold medals. And, but they started, there started to be this mass defection through Hungary, and they realized, oh, my gosh, we're losing control. So we, we better, of course, Reagan had been there before to say, uh, Brezhnev tear down this wall. And to be there was so astonishing. Uh, before it actually broke, we went into East Germany through Checkpoint Charlie. And it was amazing how like little things, you know, roll towel, toilet paper that we take for granted in the in the Western world, you know, all of a sudden it became the roughest, lousiest paper. And, you know, it was just a hundred 200 yards, whatever the wall, as it was built up. But um, it was uh, really profound to see people, they walk for days, you know, they walk from Potsdam and Dresden, just to get through that wall. And, you know, my little, of course, it was Walter Cronkite was the main, (laughs) our main reporter, but I just had a little slice of the pie, but I didn't care because I was there.
0: You have had so many firsts in your career. You've opened so many doors for women these days, certainly an increased awareness of the struggles that women have faced. Really, in every kind of work is what we're seeing, the Me Too movement and all of this awareness today. Is this, do you think, a turning point? Is this a bump in the road? Will it make a difference and finally help make the playing field level for women in all lines of work?
2: Uh, yes, I do, but I I don't know if it's dreamed to. Um, I will say that uh, it's in every industry, and uh, women have just had enough. They've had enough of of, of not being treated equally. Uh, I will say that although players, you know, hit on me every day. Same thing for Jackie McMullen saying they were the bubble after me. But uh, you know, there's no women in my business that hasn't dealt with it. But the people who made my decisions—I owe my career, as always, being the first—I owe my career to four men: one, Vince Doria of the Boston Globe, and then three men from CBS: Ted Shaker, now my chairman of CBS, Sean McManus, and the great Les Moonves, who's the CEO of CBS. And not one assignment. Or one economic decision. I, I cannot say that for my career, which is 40 years now, n- none of that was dependent on harassment. Uh, so, you know, I'm really hoping. I'm. I'm I, I guess I wrote this book because um, I think you can have a dream. I mean, and and I maybe your dream was to be, you know, a, a sports. Caster. Um, mine was a sports writer, but women now can grow up and say, "Wow, I, I, I want to be a sports writer. I want to be a sports caster. I want to cover the Re- uh, the Red Sox, or you know, I want to cover the World Series. I want to cover the Super Bowl." And they actually don't have to uh, stand down and think, "Wow, this is going to be a really long haul."
0: You talk about so many wonderful colleagues you've worked with through the years in the book. Can you share some memories of the great Dick Enberg, who we lost just recently?
2: Oh, thanks for asking about Dick Enberg. I was privileged to, uh, I first met Dick Enberg when I was at the Globe, and he was doing NBC, the Final Four, with the great Al McGuire. By the way, how about Al McGuire, because I did get to work with him later. Al McGuire, I remember once at dinner, Al McGuire said, Kamikaze Pilots. I don't get it. Why do they wear helmets? <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? That is great. So, no, I've worked with brilliance. But, yes, uh, Dick Emberg, I think I did three or four NCA tournaments with him. And I can remember one that we did. Uh, it was Dick Emberg, Bill Walton, and myself. And we had Arizona in the tournament. And uh, Luke Walton, of course, a great now great coach. But Luke Walton was playing at Arizona and Bill Walton started ripping him on the air. You know, and you have to picture Bill Walton's voice, right? <laughs> Walton, that's a terrible pass. <laughs> what are you doing, Walton? What are you doing? Are you out of your mind? And Dick Emberg had to say, now, 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 Bill, he had to be the father. I'm sure he's doing the best he can, <laughs> but he was a gentleman, a scholar, a doctorate, and a storyteller. Uh,
0: you've talked with us about uh, Will McDonough and how much he meant to you and so many others, and that incredible Globe staff that you were a part of that the several have acknowledged is maybe the best in the history of sports journalism.
2: Yeah, I think Sports Illustrated did name us. Uh, in, I mean, I was the end of the Tale, but they acknowledged they acknowledge those years as the best sports section ever. It was Bud Collins on tennis, Peter Gammons on baseball, Bob Ryan on basketball, Will McDonough on football. And it was interesting when CBS first came to me, they came up to the Globe and offered me a job on the NFL Today. You know, obviously Brent Musburger, they were huge. And and I said, why would I leave the Globe? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you've got to be kidding. I mean, there are only 20 of these jobs in America. And, but the, the Boston Globe taught me uh, a couple things. One, don't take the floor unless you have something to say, unless you're going to report something or you have an anecdote or you're, you're going to introduce something into the conversation. I mean, these people ever, ever to this day, and I'm in my 60s, i've never met more brilliant people more committed people uh... it just it was such a privilege And i I started there at nineteen and i couldn't possibly have known how great it was
0: by the way that move into television was fictionalized uh... by the great dan jenkins i didn't know about that until i read it in the book
2: yes dan jenkins and of course we love sally sally jenkins was in that bubble that had jackie McMullen and christine brennan i mean Really, for a little bit there, it was like as good as it gets. But um yes, uh Dan Jenkins, you know, at that time, people didn't go from print to TV. They were very distinct industries, and I don't know that one had that much respect for the other. And uh so in the book, You Gotta Play Hurt, Dan Jenkins has me fictionalized, and he says, what do you want to spend the rest of your life saying, back to you, Jim Nance? Which, which of course, is what I've done for 30 years. <laughs> so, yeah, So I, I, it was an honor to know Dan Jenkins, and I'm very good friends with Sally. Uh, I
0: loved it, too, uh, late in the book, uh, I stumbled upon an excerpt of one of my favorite poems, Halfway Down.
2: Yes, Winnie the Pooh, Halfway Down the Stairs is the Stairs Where I Stopped. It isn't at the bottom and it isn't at the top. That's one of your favorite poems.
0: Absolutely, I saw that. and <laughs> I went, well, wow. no wonder I like Leslie so much. Tucker <laughs> Frederickson and A. A. Milne.
2: Well, you know what? Uh, he was a he was a brilliant and a what was he a? I guess it was Lewis Carroll was the mathematician, but A. Mill Milne, I, I think he was a professor at Oxford or Cambridge, and he just did this to entertain his son. And uh, but I do think that John Madden actually taught me this. You're not going to believe this because this is so unlike John Madden. He said, all you need to know about life is if you read Peanuts every day. <laughs> That's not bad <laughs>
0: advice right there. Uh, the book is delightful. It's such a great read. Sometimes you have to cross when it says, don't walk, a memoir of breaking barriers. And and in the book, you talk about, Leslie, uh, that we all in life have two resumes, our professional resume and our moral resume, the way we lead our lives. And, and I can say from the interactions we've had through the years, uh, you are all aces in both because uh, you've been so kind and so generous with your time to everybody through the years and continue to be a role model, not just for women, but for men and for anybody who wants to pursue their dream.
2: Wow, that is so honorable of you to say that. Yeah, I used to, I used to think, gosh, I have to represent the globe. I have to represent the Visser name, then I had to represent CBS, uh, then I had to represent all women, but finally we've come. We've come, Chris Brennan and I and Sally and I and Jackie and I, we laugh about this that, um, you know, we used to all be on each other's Christmas card list. And we said, gosh, we really hope there are enough women. that, Like, I don't know half of them now, and I think that's great.
0: That is the great Leslie Visser here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Leslie, as well as Stephen Tobolowski. And thanks to you for joining us this week. Catch us again next time on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine.